Yeah, all you have to do is like go through a life-altering trauma first, and then you're in for life. I'm John Mejias in New York City. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Once again, it's We Eat Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... And then there was like all the comments and like people were just going off on how I should leave America. People are invested in certain imagery, like not being messed with. And this week we have Valerie Hegarty talking about this idea that certain artworks are timeless and never can change because artworks are not literally timeless. They're physical material that's going to decay over time. But there's like a lot invested in the idea that these things just like never will change or die. Uh, We're in Brooklyn and we're right across from the Brooklyn Museum, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. But it's right across the street. In Valerie's rent-controlled, very nice apartment. <laughs> the yeah. very first thing that comes up on your site, like the oldest pieces in the Brooklyn Museum. Did you just start there? You were just born in a museum and they're like, do you need to have a show? Yeah, I can just walk across the street and do whatever I want. Like Madeline? Yeah, they gave me a key. That's awesome. <laughs> Everybody should have their own. That show was in the period rooms of the Brooklyn Museum, but two years ago, but I do have a piece up in the museum now that's been up since 2009 in the American Wing. When they acquired that piece, I met with the curator, Eugenie Sai, and then it came up, I lived across the street, so they'll sometimes call me to do educational things, because they'll be like, oh, Valerie lives across the street, just like have her run over. Like a firefighter of art talk. (laughs) Like that physical proximity thing is underrated, I think. A lot of times people say, oh, you should get someone to do the thing. And then they're like, oh, but you're not in New York. If you're just near that, definitely helps. Is Eugenie the one who's married to Tom Finkelpearl? Yes. All right. Yeah. I know her from Skowhegan. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's been there a while and she's awesome. I actually approached her... I had an idea to put a sculpture in a period room because I go in the museum all the time. And then I just emailed Eugenie, like, I have this idea. Would you want to hear it? And she was like, sure. And then it, it went from one sculpture to three installations. But I had access just because I have a piece up there. They're actually, I think they're a pretty open museum, too, like more accessible in some ways. John, you want to start at the beginning with Valerie being born I was born in Burlington, Vermont, but grew up in Massachusetts, north of Boston, in a small town called Chelmsford. It's next to Lowell. It's like a small suburb t- type, middle class suburb. That's where I grew up and lived until I went to college. You want me to go keep going? Well, like, did you decide to be an artist there at that time, or did that, was that a thing that happened later? It's what I always liked to do. I didn't know it was like a thing you could do as a grown-up that was not encouraged or told <laughs> to me. But Were your parents um, holding this information from you? Well, the, I was encouraged to be creative, and I think it was sort of in a like self-play framework. Right. What did they do that they, that they never admitted that you could be a, maybe be an artist full-time? My dad was a surgeon, and my mom worked for him for part of the time, and then she was also a housewife. You know, they grew up uh, with immigrant parents and 
and from poor families. So it wasn't, I mean, I feel like being an artist can be a bit of an elitist thing to be too, but it wasn't, they just didn't know you could make money doing it. And that is still debatable. <laughs> Immigrant surgeon artists. So like the system worked at least in that <laughs> yeah. instinct, right? Yeah, I mean, he, my dad had to work very hard to like, yeah. try to jump some social barriers and yeah. educational barriers. I mean, we were encouraged to get educated, but it didn't go over well when I decided to be an art major in college. Where were you at? Uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. It was liberal arts. I mean, as a kid, I always made stuff. That's what I did and loved doing is drawing and making weird sculptures and things like that. I think I took an arts and crafts class at one point when I was younger, and we had to take art in high school. I just thought everybody loved making art and would do that if they could. And then I think it wasn't until college when I took an art class where I realized not everybody is good at it. Like, not everybody's passionate about that. Right. And I felt really excited about being in an art class. What were the first artists that were like, rather than just like, I'm being creative at home, like making something neat, but like the artists that were like from an art world that you kind of became interested in? Yeah, that's a good question. Because in college, I feel like I was very ignorant of the art world. Like I didn't know anything about it. I'm trying to think who we were encouraged to look at. Like I really liked figurative work. I, I remember being really into Jim Dine. Oh, yeah, I love Kathy Callwitz. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I just have to like look at my older art books. Oh, yeah, here they are, like Ben Sean. I love Ben Sean. And, but when I finished my undergrad, I actually went back to school for illustration in San Francisco. So I, I didn't know what to do when I graduated. I didn't know what any career path was for I an artist. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, I just thought like, I basically had to find a job. So commercial art seemed like being a graphic designer was what my parents were thinking might be like the logical thing. And I tried to intern doing that and I was really horrible. I hated it. And it was back when you had to use like a wax. You had to put wax on the text and cut it up and stuff. Whoa, whoa, I mean, okay, wax. <laughs> like I'm not that old. It was like kind of right around early computers. Everybody that we've had on almost, it seems like, has had like a graphic design job or a commercial art job that no one else has ever heard of, no matter what <laughs> era it is. <laughs> Jane Dixon programmed the Times Square switchboard, Output. the light show. Oh, that's cool. And Mary and I did the backgrounds for animation. <laughs> so I went to illustration school for like three years I don't even know if I was going full-time in San Francisco. And then I got out and I was asked to do like covers of magazines and CDs and things. And I was kind of bad at that too, but I was getting jobs, but editorial doesn't pay well. And I was thinking like everything I did, whatever the subject matter was, like I would carve an image in wood and then make it look like it was on fire. Like that was my <laughs> illustration. I have that a bunch of them. I just like found them all in my parents' house. What was the most successful one? I like my... Uh, Django Reinhardt centerfold and it was like him and the gypsy caravan on fire with some roses and mad dogs oh and I had like a Robert Johnson thing I was really into I ended up I didn't really like doing that either so I just quit and stopped taking jobs and got a part-time job doing PowerPoint charts and graphs at a consulting firm what year was like around you getting out of uh, San Francisco out of out of out of illustration uh, probably like 
98 or something. Okay. I got a part-time job. When you do PowerPoint for consulting firms, I did that part-time for a really long time. Yeah. And um, just got a studio at the ceramic studio in San Francisco. I was the only one who didn't make ceramics. And I rented a little space. And I just thought, well, this is what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to get my paid job, which will just be some corporate part-time thing. And then I'll just go make stuff. Like, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't really know what you're supposed to do. And then I entered a few things in shows in San Francisco and got in a few shows. And then it, I started thinking about graduate school. Like, I had never gone to an art school. And I thought that would be amazing if I could go to an art school. Where'd you go to graduate school? The Art Institute of Chicago. I was 10 years out of undergrad. So had you been illustrating that whole time you were out? No, I illustrated for like three years. And then I moved to Chicago with a, for a boyfriend. And, but I was thinking the art, I knew the Art Institute was there and that was kind of in the back of my mind. I just had my part-time job and I just like made stuff. And then I eventually applied and got into grad school. Was like wood carving your art at the time as well? Or were you doing like a different kind of thing? Yeah, once I gave up, illustration was wood carving. And I never knew, even knew how to wood carve. I just was like scratching into wood. But then I started doing like a lot of fiber art stuff, like sewing latex and fabrics into like organic forms. Oh, I was really into Eva Hesse and um, a lot of like people that were doing kind of organic bodily forms. I did that almost up until grad school. Okay, your work is like super <laughs> art historically informed or, you know, it gives that impression. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like there's a moment where you're like, oh, I was hit by Gilbert Stewart, you know. Like, when did that interest develop or was it just sort of a thing that slowly trickled in? Well, so in grad school, I was making work. I was interested in memory and architecture. And so I was often returning to recreating parts of rooms from my childhood or my adult life. But the house I grew up in my childhood was a fake colonial. A lot of houses in that area are made to look like a historic home, but they're not. Right. And we had all these historic artifacts like Revolutionary War rifle and like Paul Revere tea set. And they're all fake, but I thought they were real. Like when I was younger, I thought I thought we were like pilgrims and that's like where <laughs> yeah. we came from. But like everything was like made in the 60s or something and right. made out of plastic. We had like early American landscapes, but my dad had bought them at the hardware store because the guy in the back of the hardware store would paint them. So it kind of looked like an American home, what right. they imagined American historic home would look like, but it was all fake. So I think when I started referencing art history, I it started with the early American landscapes and they were just something I loved from growing up with them. The town I grew up in is near Concord in Lexington. So we we're always taught the Revolutionary War and the interest kind of came from a personal place, but then it like veered out a little bit to be more like political in a way or social commentary or something. I'm, I'm from like DC and Maryland. Yeah. But when I hear stuff about the Civil War, it reanimates what I thought of as a very boring landscape yeah. as a child. Like DC was interesting kind of, but the rest of Maryland is just sort of boring rolling hills. But when I 
have this historical context, it's like, oh, wow, like pe- millions of people died over there in Manassas. Suddenly it's not just a mall. Yeah. Was that at all like your experience? I mean, do you feel like it reanimated Vermont for you or was it something that was interesting to begin with as a child? Yeah, it wasn't interesting as a child. I was only in Vermont till I was three years old, and then we were in this town, Chelmsford. I like kind of hated growing up there. I thought it was really boring. I felt kind of trapped. And then sort of interesting to look into the history of the town when I was in grad school. I made this video where I had, I kind of reposed parts of my parents' house like it was an authentic colonial home and I dressed up me and my sister and my mother and we would like pose in these like stereotypical poses for the video camera but I had been looking into looking into the history of the town made it more interesting knowing it was a historic town yeah it was like interesting to kind of go back a little bit older and um, think about the context more And also coming from an immigrant background, how people like wanted to be American and you kind of recreate your history. It's like very Las Vegas or something. When you say that it expanded out to other people, like other subjects besides just your connection to the history, when did that start? Like, what do you think those themes are? Or are you scared to say, like, you're hoping other people will just draw their own connections? I'm, I, I didn't mean that as a mean question. I mean, I usually, <laughs> I usually am just like, I just did this because I felt like it. I hope someone finds some meaning in it. So I don't know. Well, the first piece I did referencing an art historical painting was, the reason I made it was because I was doing these peeling paper installations, like making the gallery look like a ruin. And I was at my gallery wanted me to be in an art fair and I wasn't allowed to glue anything to the walls. So I thought <laughs> like, oh, but I'm commenting on the space, but maybe I can comment on something else that would be in an art, an art fair besides the wall and the floor. And I thought, obviously, like that would be art. So I asked my gallery if one of the artists at the gallery could give me one of their paintings and then I would make my piece with their painting, almost using it as a surface. And they were like, "Uh, no, (laughs) nobody's going to want to give you a painting so you can rip it up. So like make your own painting. Right. So I I thought it would be funny in like this, you know, young, hip Miami gallery art fair to make a really ponderous, giant, like historic looking artwork with a giant gold frame and have it like fill up the whole booth. I was thinking of, I want to make an early American landscape painting that looked like an authentic, like historic painting, but that had been shot through with gunfire. I don't really know exactly why that idea popped in my head, except like the Iraq war was going on and I had seen pictures of military graveyards and this like war damage overseas that we don't normally see over here. And then I had seen this article about a, a woodpecker sighting this particular woodpecker was thought to have been extinct. And so those two ideas kind of came together in my head, like war damage. And then maybe once the painting looked destroyed by gunfire, you'd figure out a woodpecker did it. This is kind of rambling, but it it all came together in this moment. And I was telling my gallery and they were like, wow, like even we didn't like think 
you'd go in that direction. Did like you have that, them on the edge of their seats with this presentation? Yeah, they were like, because they thought I was going to be make something similar to what I had been doing. What were you making right before that? So right before that, I was making these decaying tableaus right, that okay. were based on spaces I had been in, either from my childhood or just even currently. And I would glue paper to the walls and floors and rip it up. And so the leap to like make my own, make an artwork and kind of create some sort of damage on the artwork was coming out of that work. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, no, no, that totally makes sense. Because like the art is (laughs) part of the art's part of the decor. It's like what would be in a gallery. It's supposed to have a more charged, you know, we're supposed to care more, I guess, than we do about the sofa, but it's still part of an era. But how far did you have to go learning to paint enough to enough like a in a historical way yeah. to be able to authentically really reference the way these old artworks look? I mean, looking at like the Rothko one, I don't know if you did more than one Rothko, but that's like one of my favorites. Oh yeah, I did a I did maybe two because it's kind of like almost anything is better than a Rothko, you know, and so it's like. <laughs> All you had to do was kind of get some colors and then you made this kind of awesome sculpture, which is like what would happen if you destroyed a Rothko very artfully. And it's so much better than a Rothko. But I would imagine that all you had to do was paint as well as Mark Rothko for that one. So it was easy, but there were probably harder ones. And do you feel like you had to like learn all these different ways of oil painting? Well, the funny part is, The only time I got criticized in a review for not being able to paint like the actual painter was the Rothko. Of course, because being (laughs) able to... Nobody cared. I was copying giant beer stats, like 10 feet long. Nobody cares. But Rothko, it was like, why did she even try? And also in that same show, like they were talking about how it never, it was more of a prop. Like in a way they are props. They're like stand-ins for the real thing. But... With the early American painting, like, I would sort of painstakingly graph it off, you know, make a grid, and then Mm. try to copy squares. Yeah. But I wasn't using oil. I was using acrylic. Smart Because then I needed to cut into them, and the oil dries too slowly. Right. So I was just copying by eyes. When I first started doing it, I was very, like, slow and deliberate. And I think because people generalize that era and artwork, like nobody was comparing it to a real one until I started doing Rothko. Why is that though? I feel like I know exactly why. Tell us. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Beardstadt, like he has a historical place, but he doesn't have an art historical place. You know, like he's an American painter who paints Buffalo because somebody had to be painting Buffalo, but he doesn't have a place in art history that if you pull him out, like a bunch of other dominoes fall. Whereas there's a whole bunch of people who have art collections, which are good because they have like a Richard Serra in it, but then they were a good collector to get that Richard Serra and it was good because they had Andy Warhol in it. And they were good to get that that Warhol because they were had a good collection because they had a Rothko in it. So there's actually like fortunes that like fund arts things that depend on Mark Rothko being good and not just a guy who kind of made a big smear. Like, there's a lot of money riding on the idea that those paintings are actually good. 
<laughs> and if they're not, then suddenly there are museum collections that are worthless and there are human beings whose lives have been wasted. The art world's story about itself has a lot invested in Rothko being a good artist. It would be like if we retroactively decided The Godfather wasn't a good movie. And every movie that was like The Godfather was a bad movie and gangsters were a bad thing to have in a movie. Like suddenly you'd have to just fucking change everything, you know? <laughs> and so I think saying that like, it's almost like for a certain kind of critic, I think it would have been impossible to admit that somebody whose real job was like doing something else with paintings could just right before they did the real part of the painting, which is make this sort of sculpture out of it, they just copied a Rothko and did it exactly like Rothko would have. That gesture looks really easy, and there's a lot of people who want it to not be easy. Well, and I also wasn't really trying to copy it exactly. I'm just like, people people know a Rothko by very few moves. It's just got to have like three bands and like a skinny one in the middle. So I wasn't like really invested <laughs> in like trying to, you know, make this great Rothko. It's just like... Well, neither was Rothko, so I think you guys are <laughs> totally square. I hope there's no Rothko fans here. I actually love Rothko, but I think people can take it as almost like a joke too, like... I think there's humor in the work, but like some people can take offense. If, like my show at Marlboro where I had like a damaged George Washington painting. I saw the Huffington Post had written a review and then there was like all the comments and like people were just going uh, off on comments. like how I should leave America. And like people <laughs> are invested in like certain imagery, like not being messed with. Well, the comments are, I mean, I feel like the comments have their own hole. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much anything will happen in the comments. Like, the dumbest thing you can think of, someone will be there, right? Yeah, yeah you can't help it. It's, it's just so easy. When you were doing that, though, were you trying to be a wise-ass? Were you trying to pay homage? Was it a joke? The Rothko is like an homage, actually. Almost like if you explode a Rothko, it will turn to dust and stars and atmosphere. Like, thinking about atmospheric painting is kind of a joke, and it's kind of like... I mean, I don't hate Rothko. Like, I love Rothko. <laughs> and I love early American landscape painting. But maybe there's commentary in there about the preciousness of things and this idea that certain artworks are timeless and never can change because artworks are not literally timeless. Like, they're physical material that's going to decay over time. But there's, like, a lot invested in the idea that these things just, like, never will change or die or... Is that why you're doing stuff on cardboard? Because, you know, it's just not going to be around. No, that's um, more of a decision based on, like, lack of knowledge of how to do anything with other fabrication techniques. Like, when I was younger, I always used paper mache. Kind of, like, it was easy easy to, like, make at home. And then I can kind of, like, make anything out of it. But I would never had a sculpture background. I never learned casting or molding or anything. So paper mache was almost like a default. That's pretty brave of you. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is exciting to you. Yeah, and it's it's like malleable. Like paper mache is very forgiving than casting where you have to know what you're doing ahead of time. I'm actually like working on some ceramics right now, which is a total change for me because you have to, you can't go back and like change it after. <laughs> so I actually had to learn the technical I took an eight-week class to, like, learn how to use clay. And that's, like, a big move for me. <laughs> Where paper mache you can alter it after. You just, like, cut it up and, like, manipulate it again and re-paper-mâché it. So 
it gave me a lot of flexibility. But nobody can tell how I make things, like, because it's so ad hoc or something. When I was, like, gluing layers of paper mache and peeling it, like, people are always emailing, like, what's your technique? Sort of like a magic <laughs> trick. I was looking at it and thinking, like, what did she do here? When I first saw your work, I thought maybe you, were just, you actually took an accent where you're destroying a room, you know, without without reading anything about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it looks kind of convincing until you get a little closer. But there's something about the way it's made that seems to convince people it's real. Do you like to convince people and fool them? I like them to have a moment where they think it's one thing and then they realize it's the other. So I don't want it to be so foolproof they can't figure it out in a couple of minutes. But I like kind of like a double take moment. Have you ever really fooled anyone, like, beyond, like, wow, I really fooled you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, once uh, I made this installation in the back of this gallery in Chicago, and they called me. They left it up permanently because it was, like, in their back hallway. And then they called me to be, like, the building inspector's coming. (laughs) Can you, like, fix it up a little bit? And I'm like, but it's not real. And they're like, we don't know how to convince him that this is not real water damage. (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you, like, sweep up some of the stuff and, like, try to fix it to, like, not look so damaged? So that was kind of funny. Did they eventually just, like, show the fire department, like, Google or something? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is, like, right when I started out. It was, like, years ago, so I don't don't know Oh, you didn't have any, yeah. The other great story was recently a collector bought a piece that looked like it was decaying and um, underneath it, was like a little pile of debris. So I set it up at their house. And then um, I got a phone call. The woman was saying she could hear it unraveling at night and (laughs) adding more debris to the pile. But I made it in a way it was like not, I knew it couldn't possibly be falling apart. Like I was just really perplexed. And she's like, no, it happened again. I can hear it at night. Pieces are falling off. The pile of debris is growing. So I was like, do me a favor and pick up all the debris, put it in a plastic bag and call me when there's more. I called a couple weeks later and, like, nothing was falling off the piece. Like, she still wouldn't admit she was imagining it, but... Are you in trouble now that you told that story on the radio? (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's, like, it's almost like a good, like, short story. Yeah. And this happens all the time where people think the work is falling apart, but it's actually not. But they're just convinced by the narrative. Yeah, there's, like, a ghost story element to all of this art. Yeah, yeah, which is what I love, because I love the portrait of Dorian Gray where the guy sells his soul and gets the portrait painted but then he starts committing evil acts and the portrait starts decaying yeah so i love gothic stories like pose and influence for sure it's kind of like you're the dorian gray for all of art history like all the horror and terror (laughs) all the bad things that this culture has been responsible for is being reflected the art in the real museum stays the same, but your versions of them twist oh, the and warp. And are, yeah, they're like, you know, what if everything done poorly in the name of the American landscape was inflicted on the American landscape? Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's exactly All it. right, I guess we're done. Figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea of like something repressed kind of bubbling to the surface somehow. What about the space cubes? Like, I like the space cubes a lot. I know, you like everything from that one show. Who doesn't like space cubes? I like the space cubes and I like the Rothko because they're both really sculptural. Yeah. Those are the ones my favorite is, like, when the change in the image becomes something else. Like, I like 
that they're kind of a, a third thing, I guess. Um, yeah, is a big yeah. deal for me. But the space cubes don't seem to have an art historical referent or even be in the right era for you. You know, like they're not, they're a different kind of, or I don't know, are they for you? Yeah, they were like, they were a little bit of an anomaly, but I was thinking about Rachel Whiteread too and kind of this idea of like casting empty space and like what if you actually cast space mm. and or thinking about like Solowit and like the spaces inside his sculpture. So like the idea that Rachel Whiteread like casts space. So then I was trying to be like, what does cast space look like? So I glued and painted stars on them and like Hubble telescope images. Right. <laughs> I, I was thinking, well, cast space must look like black and bubbly and like sparkly. <laughs> I think it's still wise ass arch. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm trying to get a like I've thought about that a lot recently. Is like there's a lot of like wise ass joke cracking in the work, and like now I, as I go forward, I want to kind of be wise, but maybe not such. An ass. An ass. Took out the ass. Yeah, yeah like, or at least temper it a little bit, but that one sounds kind of wise ass. I don't know. I like the idea of them also being these building blocks that grow into a bigger space, too. Yeah, I mean, like, some of them, like, there's a thing, and it's usually, if not beautiful, then at least it's a from an aesthetic, you know, that was meant to be beautiful at the era that it references. And right. then you've destroyed it in this sort of artful way. But then some of them in the destruction, they like turn into another thing. Right. Yeah. Some more you know, like than others. One painting that turns into like a tongue. Yeah. I don't know if that's the wise. I don't know. Maybe it's more wise ass, you know? Well, it's almost like that one there's a transformation, which is kind of what I want. Whereas a lot of the work might be like just breaking it down, but it doesn't shift into something else. So I like the watermelon tongue for that reason. It's probably like the most surrealist move in a way. Because it wasn't like a piece where you're like, did that really happen? Like, you know, that didn't happen. And that piece is actually based on news reports where uh, watermelons were exploding in 2012, like whole crops because they were sprayed with the wrong growth hormone in uh, Mexico and China. So like, I thought that was like a really f interesting Frankensteinian oh, wow. story. So I tried to make a painting thinking like, well, what if the insides were just coming out, but then it started to look like a tongue. And then I liked the idea that the watermelon was like taunting the viewer, <laughs> like, ha ha, like you sprayed me with, you know, the wrong uh, growth hormone and look what happened. <laughs> and also that like we eat watermelons with our mouths and our tongues. So there's something about that transformation that, I thought worked really well. So it came out of the process, like the tongue. That one came out of the process, and it, but it also came out of like a real-time story of humans interfering with nature. So like how often does the overall shape come out of uh, the process and how often is it like pretty much what you expected, like in terms of how much it, space and the shape of the space it takes up? It's kind of half and half. Like I was very process driven with this work where I'd sort of play around with it and then be like, oh, this is interesting what's happening. And then like I wouldn't know ahead of time what I thought it would look like. And then sometimes I plan it out more. But the watermelon tongue was kind of one of the ones that was like right came out of the process and was a nice surprise. My daughter did not like it. The tongue. Yeah. She's nine and she thought it was just gross. <laughs> <laughs> She's still going to eat watermelon, she told me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first ceramic piece I finally made that last week was a ceramic tongue. I mean, a watermelon tongue. I've been trying to make it as a ceramic tabletop piece. 
and that seemed to translate really well in ceramics. But somebody wrote a comment on my Facebook because I posted an image saying, I love it, but I don't want it. Because everyone kept writing, I want it, I want it. And then he was like, yeah, it's great, I don't want it. <laughs> There's an interesting quote that it was in like an old Francis Bacon biography that I was reading in that I think it shows how like I get normal people, for back of a better word, like think about <laughs> art. And she was talking about like one of his paintings, you know, one of the big black grisly ones. And she was like, well, I think it would look very grand in a museum, but I can't imagine why anyone would want to look at it every day in their house. And I think that for people who go to look at art in museums, like dutifully and appreciate it, but don't really get the grotesque as a thing that they like in their own life, like that's kind of where it stands. Like it's a statement that she can like understand like respect like whoa that's important but yeah if in her mind like art is something you live with that like lightens your otherwise housekeepery existence and so she doesn't want to have to deal with so she had to clean his house every day and had to look at this like painting every day and she felt it as like an <laughs> oppressive thing i can see like people seeing that tongue as being like I wouldn't want it in my house. I only have a few pieces of artwork of mine that I only hung up recently, actually. It's kind of funny, like, one time I slept in my studio and I got really freaked out. <laughs> what? Because I feel Why? like the work is kind of like exorcisms of, like, things I'm afraid of, too. Almost like making fears tangible. But, like, when I slept in my studio, I thought they were moving. <laughs> like, in the dark because things are all twisted. Like, I kind of thought things on the wall were moving. I've never really wanted to put up my own work. Well, I, I'm interested in, like, how you live with installations and how you create a practice around installations, because I make a painting and, like, and roll it up, take it somewhere. If, you know, someone buys it, then you put it in a plastic bag and take it on the train. But, like, like when you first started making installations... Like, did you put them somewhere and then remake them? Or, like, as a starting out artist, how do you deal with them as being, like, only really existing when they're, when you're given a space to put them in? It evolved over time, but, like, the first couple installa huge installations I did, I threw them away after. Like, I did a, a piece at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and the last day of the show, I went out back and threw it all in the dumpster. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I remember thinking, like, I hope they don't see me doing this. Because maybe I'm supposed to, like, pretend it's, it's not I took, it so I took it somewhere else. But I, like, threw it away in the yeah. dumpster behind the museum. But I hadn't figured out, like, is this something that I save or do I not save? Because it's, it's like paper painted with house paint. Sure. Even if you save it, it's problematic. And then yeah. my first solo show in New York, the gallery came to me and said, it's commercial art fair time. We love your work because it's so ephemeral and non-commercial. Do you want to just do something crazy? Like, don't worry about it being commercial. Like, we're not worried about selling it. We're not even going to bother. We just want, like... It's a nice order. The press. Right. And so I made this insane installation and someone bought it. And then we, they're like, can you come to the gallery? And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> now what do we do? And a like, so we had to like kind of figure out how I would take it down and we would ship it to Italy and then I would put it back together. <laughs> what did you do? 
Well, I had started at the time making the peeling paper installations on fabric and stapling the fabric to the wall. So it was removable. I had to cut it up like a puzzle into like a hundred pieces and make a big manual about how to put it back together. And it was in like, I don't know how many boxes and it got shipped to Italy. And a lot of times collectors will just store stuff forever. So we're like, okay, maybe that'll be the end of it. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, they called and wanted me to put it back together. And it actually worked. Like we put it up in a museum. It's one of those things. I don't know how many times it can go up and down, but since then, I have figured out how to do it where I can install it one or two more times, but then it kind of needs to just be thrown out. A lot of the installation work is not commercially viable, but it could be part of a bigger show. Working that way is difficult. I pay for storage. I'm constantly throwing stuff out, trying to decide what is worth keeping and paying to keep. A lot of the work I do with kind of the interfered painting that looks like part of the wall is interfered with, it's made so it can be separated from the wall. We usually would tell the collector, like, here's how it looks on a white wall, but if you want her to go and, like, do this damaged effect, she can do it in your home. And most of the time they say, we'll just take the painting. I think only a couple times I went to a home to do something. But it's a good shtick if you want to, like, travel to Italy a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was very <laughs> stressful because I wasn't sure if we, when we opened the boxes what would be in there. Oh, Were yeah. you just winging it when you put it together again? Did you follow your own? No, I had like a very detailed manual. I'm very, very organized. And okay. so even these pieces that look like a total mess, they're very planned out. They're very systematic. I recently did an installation in Chelsea that they liked a decaying room I had done at the drawing center 10 years earlier, but I had thrown it away. So... I basically recreated it with a different color scheme. So that was kind of interesting. Like maybe the work can be shown again. It just has to be recreated because the peeling paper installations are very systematic in a way. Yeah, I feel like when you're first like coming up, recreating an artwork is like who has time. But like once that artwork has a certain amount of cachet, if it's that kind of piece, it's not, you know, like a painting that you're reconstructing bit by bit, then... You're like, well, if you've got the time and you want me to, then it's more doable. All those problems become less of a problem once you're kind of established. The decaying paintings are easier to store and sell. Sure. How did you do studio visits in the beginning? Did you just, like, people would come over and you go, here are my slides and my old stuff? I finished grad school in 2002. I moved to New York in 2003, and right away I got a smack melon residency. So I got a studio in New York and I would, I actually put up part of an installation, like made a couple installations in the studio. Right when that ended, I got a Marie Wall Sharp studio. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then I had a studio there and then right with that ended, I got a PS122 studio. So I had like a run of these spaces for a year that were decent size. Yeah. I was applying for, I don't, not as many things are available right now, but Back then, like, you could apply to white columns and you could apply to artist space and you could apply to sculpture center with slides. Some of them you still can. Sure. And, the, and the drawing center. And I got, like, appointments or studio visits with them through my slides. As a practice, like, again, when you were coming up, what percentage of your day was, like, I don't know if you were working, but you were... I was working part-time doing PowerPoint graphic three days a week. 
So you're doing the graphics uh, and you were doing, making the art and then you were filling out applications. Yeah. And researching them. Yeah. You're making art for a studio space that you have, right? So between filling out applications and making art, what was the ratio? I mean, I was definitely making art more, but I'm pretty diligent with applications. I was just telling John I had I have an application to work on today. <laughs> and I would do those at night and maybe like, you know, on the weekend or something. Usually I'd work three days to make money and then three days at the studio and then one day for applications. And try to fit in like a personal life at night or something. <laughs> in fourth place. <laughs> I worked really, really hard because yeah. I also felt like I didn't go to grad school till 10 years out and I felt like behind. Yeah. People that do that are always the hardest workers. Like, you know, when you're in school, people that took a break or they're always sitting in the front and they're just kicking ass. Yeah, because you like, I feel like when you take person. a break, you realize like how boring real life is if you're not making art. When I finished school, I like was working at a consulting firm, and then I was sort of in isolation making art. So I went to grad school. I was like beyond thrilled. I'm like, there's so many people to talk to, and <laughs> <laughs> but those people also know that they're paying money. I think a lot yeah. of students, like even when it is their loan, like their parents aren't helping and the government's not helping. Yeah, it's they true. forget it's true. that like this isn't the only option they could have taken. They could just go get a job. And so I think the older students are, like, aware, like, I chose this instead of a car. Yeah, A pretty true. nice car. So I should make something of it. Yeah, and I got a full scholarship to graduate school, so I really felt like it was a huge gift. Wow. I mean, I still had to take out a loan for a living, but I definitely, like, worked really hard out of the gate. I think most artists work really hard. I think most artists work hard, but I think they work hard in, in a different way ways. Yeah. Like a day of filling out applications is a kind of hard work I have never been able to do. But then people yeah. look at my paintings like, you work hard. I'm like, yeah, but I never fill out an application. This is easy. All I have to do is paint. Well, for installation, it's hard to get venues. Right. Of course. It kind of drove that. Yeah. But I mean, the people who are good at it are also good at finding the venues and like working with venues. Have you ever had like a venue that was hard to work with? Like you had a place where it was like, I want to take this wall out. And they're like, no. Usually there's some like ground rules that I have to work around. What are the um, ground rules usually? <laughs> well, like how bad is this going to damage the wall and... I'm gluing on the wall, so then there's always some damage that has to be cleaned up. Nothing pops out as anybody that was particularly like a problem, but I always feel like I get some rules from the get-go. Like at the, the Brooklyn Museum, like I couldn't put anything on the walls in the period rooms. Like that was just like a rule because they're like historic rooms. I mean, that makes sense. But anything that was placed on any of the furniture had to have like vellum under it. It was just like some parameters to work with. I think when you work out in public, you probably have like more. I did that piece on the High Line and that, the rule was it had to like not fall apart over the course of a year. Was it successful? Yeah, yeah, okay. that was successful, but it was hung on a fence and they didn't know the weight bearing. You know, there was like things that weren't really worked out well, but. You've got all these factors that most people don't have with, with your art. <laughs> mm. Yeah. like. I had to hire a fabricator because the materials can't be outside usually and find somebody who could make something that looked like mine out of a durable material. That was the only piece I've had to put outside. It sounds like from how you're describing your education that you kind of made these things 
in the beginning at least kind of jankily to be disposable and didn't have a lot of experience in like sculpture and craft. But it seems like as you've moved on, you've had more and more time and ability to kind of become a sculptor in terms of like just learning craft stuff. Is that been your experience? I think of myself more as a painter. Like you were pointing out, there's not many works that are in the round. There, a lot of them are kind of like pictorial, almost like sculptural paintings. I feel like I'm very crafty and that I can, I do put a lot of high attention into how I'm making stuff, but the materials were very ephemeral, fragile. I still use the, a lot of those same materials, but I did add a few things to my repertoire, like magic sculpt. That's about it. <laughs> Maybe some plaster. That's like the stuff you sprayed on and it hardens. Well, magic sculpt is a two-part <laughs> epoxy. It's kind of awful. Like you mix it together and it's kind of like a hard clay. Once it dries, it's like completely durable. Doesn't it like drive you insane slowly though? Like Yeah, like I started trying to use it recently <laughs> and I decided I'm never going to use it. Like I found that paper mache kind of worked well for most things and that I would just seal it and use acid-free paper. Like that was kind of the big commercial step. I'm still unclear when that stuff decays or usually it's like because light's hitting the paper and the glue. But I seal it. So I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if in 10 years I'm going to get a lot of phone calls. Like I know that in some cases in old stuff that I use, like museum people will just come over and look at it for you if, if they have – because they usually have a relationship with somebody at the gallery. Like yeah. if you, you just say, hey, can like one person look at this? They kind of are happy to get out of the museum and do something. Yeah, like, I mean, once somebody buys it, it's really their responsibility. I have gotten calls to like fix things very – a few times – the conservators at the Brooklyn Museum I've met with, because they're like, how are we going to know when it actually falls apart? Like, it looks like it's falling apart. So as a conservator, how do I know when it's actually <laughs> falling apart? Legit. So they thought that was, like, hilarious. And, <laughs> they're like, uh, yeah, you're off the hook, really. I yeah. <laughs> earlier, I remember my gallery would say, it's part of the work. It's going to, like, fall apart, which is a good, convenient answer. But nothing, like, really seems like, you know, if people are, like, taking care of their artwork, it's not in direct sunlight and it's not, like, exposed to, like, water, <laughs> it should be okay. Like, taking my ceram this ceramics class was kind of my first step in, like, I'm going to learn casting. Like, now I want to take a casting class to try to, like, use different materials. I, I mean, I've been, like, probably 10 years with paper mache. But I thought, like, with all the residencies and stuff, that would have been a perfect time, right? Do they usually have, like, a little casting? No. No, you're kind of just on your own. Because I know, like, I think it, like, what was it? It's Skowhegan. They had, like, a an impasto class. You know, they are like, two classes. Or like, something. you could take classes there? There was, like, two or three, like, little things, like, yeah. in between all the laying around in the in the lake and futzing around your own studio. Like, there would be, like, a class off to the side that somebody was teaching. I was wondering. Yeah, but, like yeah. I'm, somebody taught me how to make a monoprint this summer when I was at Oxbow teaching and um, I had a watercolor on a screen. I was like, oh, I want to do that. So I just like started. <laughs> so with the transparent base thing? Yeah, with the transparent base. Yeah, what did they like, teach you in art day. school? Monoprint's like day one. <laughs> well, I didn't go, I didn't go to art school, school undergrad, so I didn't learn anything. And then like I was a psychology minor and a studio art major, but I don't know. I guess we learned some stuff. I don't remember, but... Grad school, you don't take classes in technique. Right. Right. Now that you get to be independent now. Well, you're pretty good at talking <laughs> about art, so you clearly 
that's the, the, the grad school. Yeah, I feel like in this interview, you started off like, I don't know what I was doing, but now you really know what you're doing. Well, I realized like nobody, it was kind of like More learning that nobody people. knows what they're doing, really. I mean, I know the art world's like this machine. I never knew about it. And then once I did, I never thought I'd be a part of it. And then it kind of happened by accident in a way. But a lot of people don't know what they're doing. Like, there's a lot of figuring it out as you go along, I think, with installation work and stuff. Yeah. Paintings is more straightforward. Paintings are straightforward until you uh, you have to apply for a thing and then they say, describe your installation in detail in the application. You're like, well, I was going to do a bunch of paintings and put them on the wall. That you put and on there's the like wall, 20 yeah. more lines to fill up and you're like, <laughs> right, yeah. the, the grass is always greener. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you painters have it hard <laughs> in some regard. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about, back to your parents who weren't really seeming to encourage you? What do they think about your art career now? They're very proud of me now. I think they like got won over by the fact I just never gave up. When I sold my first artwork, they thought that was like the funniest thing they ever heard. Like <laughs> they like couldn't believe it. Like, cause it was for a certain amount of money and they had seen the artwork cause I stored it in my dad's garage. And he was like, if you don't get this out of the garage, I'm going to burn it. It was like a paper mache wheelbarrow and like wood and bricks. And he's like, why are you making something that looks like a real thing? That's not the real thing. Like it doesn't work. He's like, I'm going to light a bonfire and get rid of it. If it worked, it wouldn't be art. And then I like sold it and t- t- called them all proud and they like could not stop laughing because they're like, what kind of idiot would buy that? And then they kind of apologized or maybe my mom did after saying, we just don't know. Like, we don't know anything. They were like, we thought you were making it up this whole time when you kept saying, I'm going to be an artist and make stuff that sells. Like, we were like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> like, she's green, clearly though. delusional. And then when it happened, they couldn't believe it, that it was actually could be Turned true. Into money. How much of the art world just sounds like someone lying? Now my dad's like much more critical because <laughs> I explain what conceptual, what a concept is. And he's like, well... <laughs> Your concept's repetitive, and yeah. It didn't take long to have an opinion about things. But yeah, no, they're very encouraging. They wish it was easier to make a living, of course. Did you ever hear David Sedaris's bit about when he was an, an artist? No, but I would love to. It's real. It's called Something <laughs> Moments in the Life of an Artist. Like, his parents are kind of like yours in the beginning. They're yeah, like, you're not a fucking parents. artist. You know, your sister could do watercolors. They're an art. She's an artist, but... But then he gets, like, he's doing something at the Philly Museum where he's, like, he admits, like, Sedaris admits he's just really high on speed and just doing random shit, like, and calling it performance art. But at some point, his dad starts yelling, you should heat up a bunch of soldiers on a frying pan to symbolize man's inhumanity to man. And oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad's giving me ideas, and sometimes they're good. Like, <laughs> hmm. He made this one sculpture that was, like, brilliant um, when I explained what installation art was and public art. He's very meticulous with his lawn work. And he came inside and he's like, well, I made a public art piece today. And he took this like huge bush that usually he chops very meticulously and hacked like a childlike face in it just because of his skill level. But I was like, oh, my God, it's brilliant. It's like a crazy topiary made by like an idiot savant. And he did it with a chainsaw. That's in your 2015 show. There's like a painting of topiaries. Is that where it came from? Probably, yeah, because I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm going to wait five years and use it. I took a picture of him by his work because I'm like, the artist should pose by his work. And he was like, he was proud of it. But I was like, that's actually really good. But then he has some other crazy ideas. Okay, I want to know how much of your work is your dad's. 
Like, just straight up tell us. Because <laughs> the 2015 show, we've got George Washington Topiary. And we've got... Oh, yeah, those are Clippership just... Clippership Topiary. Those are um, from the this residency I did recently. So I was out in nature, like, thinking about topiaries. Yeah, 10% of my work is coming from my dad. <laughs> did your mom contribute anything? Well, she's always like, why does it always have to be breaking through the wall? She's like, why can't you just make a flower? Why does it have to be a flower breaking through the wall? <laughs> That's so mom. And then she's like, is it about us? <laughs> is that because of That's us? That's also so mom, right? <laughs> my mom's like breakthrough with my work was, you know, some of your early stuff I didn't understand, but this stuff looks like, you know, I used to do a lot of drugs and... <laughs> this is like what things look like when you're on drugs. And I was like, all right, mom. I just remember like she went to the, like around New this gallery in New York just being like, I really get this one. It's super, it's like trippy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty hip. I guess. I mean, she's, your parents are like stuck in the 50s. Mine's yeah, stuck yeah, in the 60s. I'm older than you. My parents didn't do drugs. My mom's 10 years hipper than yours, I guess. They must be excited about the ceramics then. Ceramics are legitimate art form. Yeah, I don't know if I told my dad, but my mom. My mom goes on Facebook under my dad's account and looks at stuff. So she saw my ceramic sculpture. Okay. And she was like, I get it. It's like ceramics. Why isn't it pottery? Why? <laughs> no, she doesn't really care. She's like not that interested in art. Do they go like, why did you make this painting and then destroy it? Yeah. I think they've kind of just given up energy on asking. Like, now I try just not to talk about it. I feel like that is a metaphor for the entire middle class's relationship to the art world. You just give up? We've exhausted <laughs> them. talk about it. And they're like, whatever. <laughs> it's making money. All right. Yeah, like, they could understand once it was getting sold. Because it was kind of like, what's the point, in a way? No, like, all art is is the behavior of insane people until someone pays for it. And then it's like, oh, it's not insane anymore. Right. <laughs> so you're like, I trashed a bathroom, and now people are looking at it. And you're like, yeah, but then someone bought it. And you're like, all right, you're safe. You're not crazy. Right. We sent you to college for a right. reason. Right, you're not, you don't have to be institutionalized yet. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about the latest show because, like, it is a little bit different to me. Like, so the 2015 work is just what was made in that in this year, but there are like three, maybe two group shows, um, an installation I did at Drew University, and then paintings that I did on a residency. I feel like some of that stuff is like more whimsical and colorful yeah. and has a little bit of a distance from art history and more just about like sort of like almost visual puns about painting. Yeah. That's that's the stuff I've been playing around with. I've been wanting to kind of make a shift in my work after the Brooklyn Museum period room shows. I kind of felt like that almost was the grand finale of the art historical work. And I'm still like interested in referencing art history, but maybe not so directly and playing around. Those are oil paintings. I'm still like trying to figure out, I almost like have gone back and forth about whether I should even post them on my website, but I went for two months to McDowell. So I did a lot of watercolors and then some oil painting. And then that led to me taking this ceramics class. So I sort of want the work to be a little like stranger. Maybe the reference is not quite so direct, but still in there. I think the way you described it was great, like kind of whimsical. And then a lot of like referencing painting 
thinking about like the distressing of the painting almost being embedded in the painting itself, like the painting breaks down to its materials, which is a palette, a piece of canvas and wood or something. So it's not like fully developed. I'm just, I feel like I've been playing around and experimenting and seeing like where that goes. And it's always like a question, do you put that on your website or not? Well, I mean, do people just do that whether you want them to or not? Like they'll just like take a picture and tag it. Well, I haven't like shown anybody much. I had a couple friends come by recently and they were the first people to see what I was doing aside mm. from what I've been posting online. Like I post online just to like keep people thinking about me a little bit. Right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't? That's that's what we all do, right? <laughs> I'm here. Thinking of Yeah, me. like I'm still here. I'm still making art. And a lot of galleries and curators are online. So like sometimes I get contacted like through Facebook or something. Yeah, but. I hear this internet thing might might be big one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so the latest work is like the obviously the newest and also marking me trying to shift, make some sort of new body of work. In in some of the older stuff, they were complications like in like the one that's like a Moby Dick thing where there's like harpoons at the painting. Yeah. It's formally complicated, but if you wanted to reduce it to an object to which a certain clear process has happened, like yeah. the bathroom fell apart or the tree's growing through the wall or the painting has gotten pecked by a woodpecker, yeah, you would be missing a lot about what's actually in the work, but you could describe it. Whereas the new ones seem like the concept underlying it doesn't get you very far into really describing what it is, and it's more about kind of how they're made a little bit. Like, mm. the topiary paintings are more about these greens and how they look. Like, the concept doesn't get you that far into them. And, like, the rib cage painting and the the concept is a little bit, does a little bit less of the work in creating what the form will be in the end. Right, but... I guess with the topiaries, I was thinking about like how we embed history and national identity into landscape. So wanting the result to not be like of the educational variety or something. Some object that maybe the ob wanting the objects to be a little more obscure or something. I feel like the work before has very clear entry points. It's got a clear narrative almost. Yeah. And maybe the narrative's a little more obscure. And I'm still sort of figuring out what those narratives are for myself, too. I don't have another show scheduled, but the next solo show, that would be where I would show a new body of work, and it's not completely developed, but I'm, like, curious how it's going to develop, I guess. The, like, the older work was more almost like a kind of fake action painting. Yeah. Most of the form, the visual that we would see, is about creating an impression of an action. Yeah. That didn't really happen. Like, you didn't really throw a harpoon. It's almost like a freeze frame animation. Yeah. And then the ones, the new ones, they don't have a clear thing that made them, even though they have yeah, ideas exactly. underlying. It was like, okay, you made something out of clay and then you paint it to look a certain way, but it doesn't look like something is occurring, you know? Right, right. And I thought about action painting a lot, like making the previous work, hmm. like that they were kind of these funny action paintings. And like whether that, makes the work more or less interesting or just different, I don't know, but um, different, hopefully. I mean, it sounds like you feel like you did the thing that you meant to do with the other work, so. Yeah, I feel like I kind of hit a point where I'm like, I, 
wanted to go more from the political to the personal again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe something like that. Make it a little pers- more personal and a little weirder or something. Yeah, I mean, definitely in like the excavation one, like the circuit, I guess that's an installation from. Yeah, like, that was um, kind of along the lines well, of the older work at uh, Drew University. But it still, it feels, because the installation is so arbitrary, it feels very created. Right. There isn't a historical thing saying that there were green shutters here and there were purple stripes there. And you know what I mean? Like, there are so many things that are clearly just aesthetic decisions. Well, that piece, some of the architecture is based on the campus. No, oh, okay. Yeah, so the green shutters, was it's from the original building on campus. So I, it's supposed to look like I was digging through holes in the wall and finding these other places, but they're not actually behind the wall. Right, yeah. They're in other places on campus, so it's like a fictional excavation that goes back to the earliest. Right, I mean, the idea is clear, but I feel like it's, almost much more of a trompe l'oeil painting than a conceptual art piece. If you just described that, it could be 300 things that look 300 ways, whereas the physical object is this sort of Alice in Wonderland hole that kind of has a storybookish palette almost. Like, it has a very kind of color. Yeah, there's kind of like a minimizing or something. The hole was like really the form I was interested in. Yeah, it seems like it's more of a painting almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you said you wanted to make it weirder. How often are you, are you feeling kind of be weirder? Yeah, uh, it, I know. It's kind of a... Um, we've had other artists on the show say, say that. Weirder. It's be weirder. Yeah, I, it, not like in a conscious way, but maybe in a way that feels a little more personal or something. Like weirder as in less illustrative. Like we talked about my illustration background, but I think there's something illustrative to the earlier work or the work I've been doing that's kind of like you were saying, showing this narrative as if it was frozen or something. Yeah, I kind of I kind of like things that are uncanny, which is about being strange, like kind of familiar but not familiar and like thinking about maybe making... Yeah. That aspect of the, pushing that aspect of the work, maybe the strangeness or the uncanniness. Like there's something like familiar and funny and then kind of eerie at the same time or something. It ultimately becomes beautiful. I don't know why. Thank it you. It that connection to me. <laughs> it's like you have to find a, a vein where you didn't realize that that would work out. Right. Clearly like Beardstat didn't predict that if you took this painting of a buffalo running across the plains and then you shot it, that that would actually work out, you know, and that could also be a painting. And I right. think that finding those unused veins is kind of a, a thing to do. Yeah, and it's like a fun place to be. It was hard to try to, it's been hard to shift because it then there's commercial pressure to do the same thing or it's just easier if people know what you do. But the residency kind of created this time in isolation and privacy. Yeah, residencies are horrible because everyone's like, ah, man, I got all these ideas and you do whatever I want. And then you make stuff and you're like really creative. And then like your gallery comes at the end and they're like, what is this? This isn't what you usually do. I I can't describe this in a sentence to people who have seen your old work. It's a tiger. (laughs) You don't paint tigers. Well, I do now because I was at a residency and they had tigers here. I know, it's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for such a thoughtful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Valerie Haggerty's latest work in a group exhibition in LA at Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions called The Ecstasy of Mary Shelley, up now through February 12th, 2017. It's curated by Virginia Broersma, Nick Brown, and Kyo Griffith. Coming up this spring, Valerie will be in a group show at Concordia University. Also this semester, she'll be teaching drawing at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, and teaching art to kids at a public school in Brownsville. And she'll also be a visiting artist this semester at American University in D.C. Valerie is currently developing new work in ceramics out of Brickhouse Ceramic Art Center in Long Island City. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. And Zach has a book with China Mieville called The Worst Breakfast, available everywhere where books are sold, pretty much. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. All art is is the behavior of insane people until someone pays for it and then it's like, oh, 